Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Mark chapter 13. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches, when, when, I'm sorry, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeepers to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning together with a united heart, united lives. We're here as one before you with the same needs, God. Ultimately, we are in need of you. We need you, God. And maybe we haven't been thinking that way. Maybe we don't even realize it, but it's true. God, we need you this morning. And so that's the reason why we're here, to receive, God, from you what we need and to give you all the glory for who you are, to be in communion and relationship with you, to hear from you. What an incredible reality, God, that you've spoken and you're speaking. And so we believe that right now, God, as we're gathered according to your promises and your invitation, we believe that you have words to say to us. You have things to say to us corporately as a community, just over us as a church locally here. And Holy Spirit, you have things to speak to us personally, things that no man can muster, but things that you know we need. And so, Jesus, we just give you the room now, the space to minister here. We just come to you recognizing who you are as our God, our shepherd, We ask that you would lead us in paths of righteousness this morning. Take us further into who you are and what you have for our lives. I invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us during this time. It's all about you. We want to hear from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seat. All righty. Well, thank you, Dan, for reading those verses. Hey, if if you're... uh, if you're popping in here uh, to church here for the first time, want to just catch you up to speed, we have been for really almost the past year, about eight months, almost nine months, uh, well really actually nine months, we have been walking through this incredible biography of the life of Jesus, and that's the Gospel of Mark, one of four biographies on Jesus' life, who he was, what he was like, what he said, what he did. Um, Mark, especially written by a young man named John Mark. A lot of people believe that it was Peter, Jesus' own best friend and disciple, who was dictating to John Mark what he was penning. 
but this gospel covers a unique angle on the life of Jesus. It specifically focuses on what he was like. I mean, every gospel you could say to some extent speaks to that, but especially Mark gives you an insight, a window into the way in which Jesus lived, his ways, like, like what he was really like. And so that's what we've been after here as we've been studying Mark. We don't want to assume the way of Jesus. We want to humbly learn the way of Jesus so that we might know who he is in truth and also that we might live more like him. I can't tell you how many times in my own Christian life um, I was living a Christian way that I assumed was the way of Jesus. And then I, like, I read the Bible or something or I had a loving friend be like, that's, that's not Jesus. That's not him, okay? This is what he's like, and that's what we're after, the true way of Jesus, amen? Like, we're not trying to settle for some religious version of Jesus or just um, some sort of man-made version. We want the real thing. And so that's what Mark has given us. Uh, so appropriate, then, that we entitled our series here in Mark, The Way, all right? The Way of Jesus. What, what is that way like, learning from the life of Jesus in this gospel? And each week, we're looking at a different aspect of the way of Jesus. You guys all know this by now, right? You've heard this once or twice. Uh, in this section of scripture here, at the end of Mark chapter 13, we're, we're, by the way, in the end of Mark 13, and let me just also give this outline, chapters 1 through 10. Remember this? Mark 1 through 10 covers three years in the life of Jesus, three whole years. When you get to chapter 11, 11 through 16, which is almost the second or really last third of the book is probably the way to say that, that last third of the book, chapters 11 through 16, it covers the final seven days of Jesus' life. It's that important. The last week of Jesus' life, which culminates in him going to the cross, which is coming up here in a few chapters. Uh, and that's what we're, we're dropping into. In Mark 13, we're dropping smack dab in the middle of the most significant week in the history of the world, okay, in the life of Jesus. And here, at the end of Mark 13, we have some interesting stuff going on. This is a unique chapter. Uh, in this chapter, Jesus is essentially, this whole chapter, Mark 13, it's a lot of red letters. It's Jesus giving a long answer to a question that his disciples asked him. Listen closely. Here's what they asked him about. They asked him about the timing of his return. You ever wonder that? Jesus said he's coming back. You ever wondered about the timing? When's that going to happen? What's it going to look like? They say, Jesus, when, what will be the sign of your coming? What, what are the sort of things we could look for that are going to signify that your return is near? Can I tell you, Jesus loves when we ask him that question, and he loves to give us his own answer. He wants his church to be ready for his return, which, by the way, he is coming. He came the first time. Jesus will return again. He will come again. And we did a whole sermon in the first week on just what that actually means and what that looks like. And that's really been Mark 13. We've taken four weeks to go through this, talking about the return of Christ and more specifically what are called end times events. You ever heard of that before? You ever seen that Kirk Cameron movie? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Maybe not. And that's a, that's a good thing. But anyway, um, end times events refer to really the events that are connected to the end of history as we know it. And it inaugurates a new time, the new heavens and the new earth, which is what, to, what is to come. Mark 13 has been all about those end times things. But here, as we get to the end of this chapter, Jesus concludes his answer about these end times things, listen, with a charge to his followers. 
it kind of all culminates in this point that Jesus calls them to, this point that Jesus makes at the end of this chapter. And it's a charge for them to watch. This is what he says. He says it four times in the verses we just read. Four times he says, in light of all these things, here's the charge that he gives them. I want you to watch, to live watchfully. All right, now that's the charge. We're going to go back through and read this. And if you, uh, oh, I missed it. So you didn't catch it because I didn't say it. That makes sense. But the way Jesus charged, <laughs> sorry, that's the title of the message, okay? The way Jesus charged. That's, the, that's what we see here in this passage. That's the, the aspect of Jesus here. He's wrapping up this point, and it's all come to the head. He doesn't just want his followers to know spiritual things or to be filled with some kind of useless knowledge about end times events to show it off to their friends or to argue with other Christians. He, he wants them ultimately to take what they've learned about him and his coming and translate it to a sort of watchfulness in how they live. A watchfulness in how they live. Let's go back through and see him make this charge to them. Uh, it's, it's, it starts with this. Jesus says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth leaves, Jesus says, you know that summer is near. Jesus is talking about signs that point to coming seasons. This is, we've talked about this too. This is foreign to us Southeasterners. But if you've been somewhere up in New England or even, I think you can go as far as Georgia or North Carolina, they have these things called fall leaves. Google it. It's a real thing. Fall leaves give a signifying evidence that a new season is here. And Jesus says it's, it's a parable, like a fig tree that puts forth a certain tenderness of leaf. That should lead you to go, summer's near. It's a simple concept. Jesus says this, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near. What is the it? My coming is near at the doors. So Jesus is saying this, there are certain spiritual and circumstantial and global signs that are there for you to be able to. You and I, we can know something. We can discern the times that we're in. The signs help us discern the times, and Jesus just gave a handful of these signs, a handful of these clues to his nearing return, signs like international conflict on a scale that no one's seen before. So this, he gives this sign of spiritual, rampant spiritual deception, and that the root of that deception is pretty much a rejection of Christ as Messiah and a self-adoption of I'm the Messiah. And then he talks about even like physical climatic deterioration of the earth, like things are broken. There's more earthquakes than ever before. I mean, he gives like these real natural disaster signs. And then last week, we looked at this other interesting one where Jesus says, you're going to see the gospel circle the globe. Persecution is going to come and the enemy is going to do everything in his power to keep Christians from spreading the kingdom here on Satan's kind of temporary domain. He doesn't like to see light fill the darkness. And so Christians are going to face opposition. They're going to face resistance. But Jesus tells them, don't worry. The gospel must be preached to all nations. And, and guess what? This is a rule of thumb here with prophecy. If Jesus says it, you can expect it. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, this gospel must be preached to all the nations. And today, if you look at a map, you can see great evidence 
to how the gospel has gone to the four corners of this earth. Paul says even in his time that the gospel has gone out into the whole world. It's gone from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, even places like Boca Raton, Florida. No one thought it would be possible that the gospel has come to Boca uh, and beyond. They estimate about 80,000 people are becoming Christians every day in the world today through the great work of global evangelism. Jesus says this, just like you could look at a tree and know that summer is near, he says, when you see these things happening, when you see these signs, it should help you discern the times and you will know that it is near. This is an interesting phrase, at the doors. Like You can't get closer to someone entering in than them being there at the front door. And when I look on at this and I look on at what Jesus has said, I've shared with you my convictions and my understanding. I believe this. I believe Jesus is presently at the door. I believe all the signs signify that he's coming and he's coming soon. Now, in the world of theology, it's the idea of the eminent return of Christ. You ever heard that phrase? The eminent return. The eminent return means he can come, not that he absolutely will, but he totally can and likely will, in my understanding. He will come at any moment. Uh, another way to say this is, is there's nothing on the prophetic calendar that's preventing Jesus from returning. That's my own understanding. And there's you know, varying degrees about end times things. But for the most part, this is like the thrust of the New Testament is that Jesus is coming soon and we should be ready. That's the point. Whatever you think about how things are going to play out, you know, what's up with the Antichrist and the Beast and the book of Revelation, that book is scary and it's intimidating. Like you have all these thoughts, like regardless of wherever you land on the future of things, this is something scripture calls us to, to, to have the sense of readiness because Christ is returning. As you look around, you'll discern something. It's soon. Now, what Jesus says next is something interesting about his return. He says, when you see these things happening, you'll know that it's near at the door. In fact, in verse 20, uh, 30, he says, the generation that sees these, these things happening is not going to pass away. When all these things are happening in that time of that generation, and they're seeing those things, they also won't pass away. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But I love this. But of that day and the hour, here's where it kind of takes a little turn. The truth of it at the end of the day is, well, no one knows. No one knows. We live in a day and age of such great technology where you can track every movement of every person, you know. Um, I used to be able to get away with, like, babe, I'll be home in five minutes. Five, just five minutes. She's like, well, you're 14 minutes away, according to my app here. And why are you in the drive-thru? Sorry. Anyway, but... Right, like even deliveries it used to be like, oh, who knows when it'll show up? Like a pigeon's going to just drop it. You know, we never know. Where today, that Uber Eats or whatever, that Uber thing, like they're, they're coming. You see them, see their name. Here they are. It's kind of creepy. You're watching them. You ever done that? Here they come. Right? There's so much technology that prepares us for different arrivals. But Jesus says, in as much as you might discern the times, the truth of my coming is it's going to come at an hour that no one will expect. Suddenly. No man knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven. Now, this is a, kind of a, maybe a theological uh, speed bump here, nor the sun. 
but only the Father. Now, I believe in this context, what Jesus is saying here is in his humanity. We know that Philippians 2 describes Jesus in the incarnation as putting aside his divine rights and privileges to come in the form of a bondservant as a man. And so Jesus willfully chose here to allow that information to be known by the Father. Now, as it stands right now in eternity, can I tell you, Jesus knows all, okay? And he knows when he's returning. Him and the Father are excited about it, all right? Um, but Jesus makes a point to hum- The idea is like humans, even angels, there's a mystery to when Christ will actually return. And so here's kind of like the big idea. Jesus says this about his return. You can write this down. Jesus says, my return will be signified. It will be signified. But it will be sudden. It's not just going to be sudden, and the church is not going to have any ability to see signals and signs that point to it. You get that? It's signified. There's things that, that, are, that will happen in the world that will point to the nearness of my return. But nor is it just all signified to the extent that Christians can act like they can name the day or the hour that Jesus is returning. Like even me, like with some level of confidence, I've been like, Jesus is coming back, guys. All right? He's coming back probably this week. Okay? Like, I've kind of acted very confidently in that, but in as much as we are led to expect that, who knows? God knows. I don't know. Um, you know, and it's really sad. Like, in the past hundred years, there have been just um, acts of outright disobedience from church leaders and Christians that have profited of naming when the event's going to happen and have like their big conference prophetic update you know 122 where you come out and you get the exact time and hour and what you should do with your savings account and all this stuff and it gets really weird okay and jesus is like no no my, my, my return is going to be signified but no man knows the day or the hour it's going to happen suddenly okay now to, to a non-believer it happens like a thief in the night that's not going to be us it's not going to be like someone breaks in and it's like, what, what, Jesus came back? No, 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 because we're watching and we're waiting. But there's, a, there's a, the nature of it that, that even Paul describes. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ's return, it's going to be within the twinkling of an eye. You ever read that? Now, by the way, you ever heard the phrase like, don't blink, you might miss it, that kind of a thing? We're not talking about a blinking of an eye. We're talking about a twinkling of an eye. A twinkling of an eye is just that little shudder of the eyeball little twinkle. Okay. Remember when you fell in love? Remember that twinkle? All it took was that little, it wasn't a blinkle, it wasn't like, I love you. It was, so a little, it's a little, I'm trying to make my eye twinkle, it's actually not possible. I, and I, I didn't prepare to do any of the things I just did uh, while I was up here, and so I'm sorry. But the twinkling of an eye, it, it speaks of the sudden immediacy of Christ's return, suddenly. Here's what Jesus goes on to say to his followers, and here's where the charge is coming. Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed. Here's what he says to his people. Here's what he says to you and I today. Watch and pray. You don't know when the time is. He's talked about things you can know. You will know that my return is near by the signs, but now he says, here's what you, you won't know. You won't know the time. So, so here's the call. Charge one. Take heed. Watch and pray. Jesus says, His return, it's going to be like this. This is really beautiful. It's like a man going to a far country, that heavenly country of heaven, who left his house and he gave authority to his servants and to each one his own work. And he commanded the doorkeeper to watch 
for his return. This is a beautiful picture of the time we're in right now. Jesus told his disciples, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. I ascend to the Father. I'm giving you a certain level of authority and responsibility as I go away. But he says, don't get so comfortable. Don't get lulled to sleep by the things of this world and the problems of this world. Watch, he says, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, there's a mystery to this. Lest coming suddenly, he finds you sleeping. And he says this, and this is really cool because we're in this next verse. He says, and I say to you, I say to, to you all, watch. Okay, now here's the charge he gives. And I really love this too because a lot of people take Mark 13 and they're like, you know, they use it to, they have some issues with modern interpretation of the Gospel of Mark, kind of like um, immediatizing, I think is the word, but like placing it in the present rather than something in the past. And they say, well, Mark 13 wasn't written to us, it was written to the disciples. But here Jesus is like, no, I'm, this is for everybody. Mark, what I'm saying here is not just for a couple followers. I'm saying this to all. I'm saying this to my followers in the 21st century that are gathering faithfully to worship me and follow me and know me here in South Florida. They're, they're, they're seeking to center their lives around Jesus. And today, here's what Jesus says over you and I. He says, watch, I'm returning. It'll be signified, but it's going to happen suddenly. In the twinkling of an eye, I will return faster than any of us could ever expect. Now, what a great charge for Jesus to give his followers. This is where everything in this chapter kind of comes to a head, and I think it's helpful for us because a lot of times the, the end time stuff just kind of becomes weird information. Instead of like life-changing, transformative truth that should actually, no matter what we believe about this, the question isn't just what do you think about the end times, it's how has it changed how you live? How has it changed you? How does the immediacy and the eminence of Christ's coming return, the fact that Jesus is going to return suddenly and all hope and glory is coming with him, how should that affect how you see your trials? How should that affect how you see your life and your job and your responsibilities and your family and the world? And that's what Jesus is getting at here. You see, these this truths about his return should lead us to live a certain way, like that servant that's watching for his master to return. The idea there is, like, here's a simple question. In your best understanding, are you ready? Are you ready for him to return? That's what the scripture would say. Are you a servant that's going to be found watchful and ready? Now, even that question and trying to answer that can be difficult because it's like, well, what does that even mean? Like, how do I become a more watchful Christian? Like, is this literal? Like, I need to literally, like, start watching? Like, I can't have a roof on my house because i got to be able to see the sky at all times. i got to watch. I've got to be driving like this. Is he coming? You know? Get a sunroof. That'll help, right? Or something, you know? It's like... Now, it's interesting because that's actually what the disciples did. Do you remember when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father? And the disciples are all there, and they're just, like, like watching a balloon go up. They're just, like, they're just gazing. They're staring. They're stuck in this position. All 12 of them. Just... And the angel goes, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> Stop gazing into heaven. He's coming back, and he, and he sends them to live watchfully. He sends them to be busy about what God has called them to. And that's the truth about being watchful. Um, really, how you look for Jesus' return is how you live. Watchfulness is not just with your physical eyes. It's a posture of spiritual life. 
There's a certain posture of spiritual life and, and motion and direction that is watchful. And there's a certain kind of life that's not. There's a certain kind of Christian life that sort of just gets used to the promise of Christ's return and sort of just acts like this is how it's always going to be, and it's reflected in how a life is lived. I love the question that Peter asks here, though. He wants to get specific. Peter says this in 2 Peter 3.10. He says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. We know that there's this renewal of the earth that's coming. And he says this, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons, here's a great question, ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That's a great question. You know, I feel like with all this study we've done in four weeks, that's what we need to ask ourselves. Okay, in light of all this, how, how has God actually called me to live? How has God called me to live watchfully? What does it even look like? Now, here's what's really cool. Mark 13, as that chapter ends... It's going to move in chapter 14 right into Passover and Jesus' final days. But remember, the Gospels are all written in beautiful parallel to each other. Many scholars believe that Mark's Gospel was the, is the source material for Matthew and Luke. And, and not that they weren't, you know, needed Mark to, um, to have an idea of what was happening, but as they were there as well, they kind of used Mark's uh, writing here, which is only 16 chapters, is very short, and Matthew expands on it with his own perspective, includes a little bit more detail, some complementary ideas, same with Luke, um, but in Matthew's version, it's really interesting, because Mark 13 is paralleled in Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is Matthew's version of the same thing we just read here in Mark 13. What Matthew does, though, is he goes into chapter 25, and in chapter 25, and I want you guys to open there, if you could turn there with me, and this is going to be uh, kind of a charge for you guys to um, get into this this week as you're studying on your own. But in Matthew 25, Matthew includes three parables that Jesus tells his followers. And these parables, they, they all kind of point to different ways that we should live in light of Christ's coming return. That's really what it does. Essentially, these three parables give us three ways to live watchfully. Uh, there's the parable of first the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids, Jesus tells there in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 25. There's the parable of the three stewards. You've heard of the three stooges. Hey, this is the three stewards. One of them was a stooge, you'll see that. But verse, that's verses 14 through 30. Or this is also commonly referred to as the parable of the, anybody know? The talents, you've heard of that before, the talents. And then lastly, Jesus tells this parable of the sheep and goats. That's verses 31 through 46. Uh, each of these parables in Matthew 25 are giving three ways to live watchfully. That's what Matthew 25 gives. If you're like, man, I want to I change my life in light of this truth. Well, Matthew 25 is these beautiful encouragements and details for how we can actually live watchfully in light of Christ's return. And, I, and I'm going to summarize these parables for us to give us some application. Let's start with the parable of what's often called the parable of the ten virgins. And if there's one significant charge that this parable gives us as those who should be living in light of Christ's return, it's a charge and a call to be found spiritually fruitful when Christ returns. That's, how, that's one way you can live watchfully is to invest into your spiritual life to the extent that you are found fruitful before the Lord. 
He looks on at your life and he finds fruit. He finds spiritual life. Let's look at that first parable of the ten virgins. That might be kind of confusing. I'll give you some context so, so it makes a little bit more sense. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Um, in that day and age, the whole engagement process and wedding ceremony experience was night and day in every way to what we know of a wedding and a proposal and an engagement today. Um, uh, th this is right out of Hebrew culture, which involves a th almost a, a three-step process whenever a couple was coming together. Um, the first was simply the engagement, and that actually happened before the betrothal, and that involved the families. They were heavily involved in the process of who their children would be in covenant with, which is a good idea to have people involved in your relationship decisions. Okay? You ever, like, made your own relationship decision, and then after the fact you told everyone, they're like, oh, okay, good, you're, you're in it. All right. Well... If you want to talk, I've got some advice. You know, like there, there can be those kind of situations. But the family was richly involved in that engagement process. That engagement process led to a betrothal where there were certain vows and promises even made about the future covenant. It was a big deal. Uh, in that culture, to break off a betrothal was the same of, of almost as equivalent to, to getting a divorce. All right? So it was a very big deal. Now, that betrothal process led up to a wedding ceremony. And in the wedding ceremony, um, you know, today wedding ceremonies all look different. Uh, I did a wedding this, just last week for an awesome uh, couple that I've known for a long time. And I just, I, you know, I love weddings. My wedding was 13 years ago today. Yeah. Hey, babe. Yeah. Lord, we just thank you for Brittany and that she's stuck with him. We're just clapping. You're God of miracles, Lord. We just, I love that round of applause. And uh, yeah, it's our 13-year wedding anniversary today. We're going away this week. And um, we got married at 14 in case you're trying to do the math in your head. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. 16. No, I'm just kidding. Too. All right. Wedding was beautiful this past Sunday. Our wedding day there 13 years ago was awesome. But this is unlike any other. What, a, what an incredible, glorious experience. You see, when it was time for the wedding, the groom would, in his own timing, unknown to any parties, in his own timing, he would return. He would come for his bride. See the picture of the church in Christ? And, and as he would come, it was the responsibility of the bridesmaids, or here described as the ten virgins, these unwed bridesmaids to go out in this beautiful processional to meet this groom as he's coming for his bride. And so you have this picture here of heaven being likened to these virgins who they take their lamps, it happens in the night, and they go out to meet the bridegroom. But notice what Jesus says. Now, five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. This is usually how it goes with bridesmaids. Like, five are good, five aren't, okay? I'm joking. I'm joking. Joking. Five are wise, five are foolish. I'm just kidding. All right. And it talks about which were wise and which were foolish. The, the foolish ones were those that took their lamps. They were foolish. They took their lamps, their, their flame, but they had no oil with them. The wise, they were prepared and they were ready. They had their lamps. They didn't just have the flame. They had the oil to sustain the flame with them. And while the bridegroom was delayed, they all, notice this, they all slumbered and slept. Isn't that interesting? They, all, they were all caught off guard. 
But at midnight a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. At an hour you don't expect. Then all those bridesmaids, those virgins arose and they trimmed their lamps. They got themselves ready. And the foolish said to the wise, they're like, oh, can, you, can we get some of your oil? We forgot the oil thing. We got the flame. We got everything, but forgot the oil. Our lamps are going out. You know, in that culture, this isn't like something that should just be given quick mercy and grace. This is such a big responsibility. This is like kind of like an unquestionable thing to be unprepared for. Does that make sense in that culture? The wise answer, and I want you to catch what Jesus says here. The wise bridesmaids say, no, no, I can't give you some of the oil that's, that's my own personal possession, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to sell, go rather to those who sell and buy it for yourselves. And while they went out to go buy it, they're like, okay, we got to go, even though we got to meet the bridegroom, we need this oil. So they went to go buy it and the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And those who weren't prepared, it says this, afterward, the other bridesmaids, those other virgins came, and they said, Lord, Lord, open, open to us. I just have in my mind like that arc door that closes, and it was such a period of grace and opportunity. You had so much time to be prepared and ready. And then there's that door that closes and is locked from the inside at that point. And the time has come. That period of grace is, is closed. And he answered and said, Assuredly, I don't know you. I don't know you. Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour when the Son of Man is coming. This is a parable that Jesus is telling that is ultimately, it's, it's meant to drive us towards a certain way of living. It's also meant to drive us towards a certain way of thinking. You know, when Jesus returns, how will he find me? Who am I spiritually before him? And let me say this. There's a difference between who you are spiritually before man and who you are spiritually before God. And that's a sobering thing. Um, it's interesting. So just the, the, the imagery is, 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 might be far from us, but for the disciples, they know exactly what Jesus is talking about, okay? Um, in Scripture, the lamp is often a picture of well, Scripture. It's a picture of the Bible, okay? You have a, verses like in the Psalm, Psalm 118, thy word is a what? A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And every bridesmaid had the Bible. The idea is they had some religion, right? And even from the onset, they all looked the same. It's not like you could walk up to the group of the ten bridesmaids and be like, yo, those are the five sketchy ones. And those are the five prepared ones. They, they all, listen, before man, they all matched what you might expect from someone who is to be ready and prepared. The difference is, though they all had the Bible, they all had the scripture, they all had the lamps, only half of them had the oil. It's interesting, you know, just having like the knowledge of the Bible is not enough. See, oil in Scripture is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. It's symbolic of anointing. It's symbolic of when heaven touches earth. It's symbolic when, of, of when God touches, puts his hand and his touch upon man. It, he puts his claim upon you. That's anointing. He says, you're mine, consecrated, set apart, belonging to me. And the evidence of this is the oil of my Holy Spirit that comes upon you, not just around you, but within you. My presence in you. 
Paul says this, that if anyone doesn't have the spirit of God, he does not belong to God. This is, by the way, this is our inheritance through Christ. Through Jesus, we receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We don't work from it, we receive it by grace. But, but it's an important distinction. It's obviously a picture here of this really kind of scary thing, that just going to church and having a Bible and knowing your Bible doesn't mean that you have the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean you're saved. That's something that's between you and God. That's something that's genuinely between you and him. But this is also a strong reminder for, for those of us that know we're in Christ. I mean, what a question for us to ask ourselves today. Jesus, um, I, have, I have as much as your Holy Spirit as, as I can understand right now as someone who's come to you and trusted you. But, but ask yourself this question, how much oil do you have? If Jesus were to come and find your life right now, would he find, and here's the word we use, fruitfulness? Is there spiritual fruit? Or maybe you could say things are a bit more barren. Things are a bit more dry. You're like, there's not a lot of vitality. There's not a lot of spiritual life. There's a lot of form. There's a lot of religion. But what about the anointing oil of the Spirit? Uh, This is something that's so important for us to remember. Even in this passage, Jesus makes a point. He says this. You and I, we can't borrow spirituality. I can't take your oil. My oil is my oil. Your oil is your oil. There's no such thing as like um, me living off of your relationship with God. That doesn't exist. You know, I like the expression, especially for those like raised in the church, that God doesn't have grandchildren. Does that make sense? He has children. He has children. He doesn't have grandchildren. It's not like, you know, I'm kind of like um, accepted by God and I'm close with God via relationship. Like I know someone that knows God really well, so I know him better than you do because they know him really well. Like, that, that doesn't work that way. Um, there's only one way to have a relationship with God. There's only one way to have, a, to have a spiritual life. It's your own personal possession. It's the only way. It's your personal possession. I can't buy your oil. I, I can't buy your experiences. That's between you and God. I have to experience God on my own. I need to receive his spirit between me and him. He'll use other people. But it's got to be a personal possession. Sometimes the biggest thing I feel like that keeps us from the oil of the Holy Spirit is we're so focused on everyone else's oil. And we're like, God, I, w- like, I wish I had it like they have it. I wish it looked like what it looks like for them. You're not them. The question isn't what kind of oil do they have? That's not, that's not your responsibility. When Jesus finds you, does he find authentic oil that comes from his spirit in your life, the work of his spirit? Now, I want to remind you that fruitfulness, that sort of idea of like having spiritual life and vitality, um, I want to remind you that It's not something, and here's kind of like the good news, right? Like the hard news here is you can't buy it from someone else or borrow it. The good news is you don't have to. You don't have to. Jesus says this in John 7. He says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood, he cried out loud. He said, if anyone, I love this, if anyone, no matter your background, no matter how you discount yourself from your relationship with God because you're not as emotional or something as them, if anyone thirst. Here's the prerequisite to being filled with the Holy Spirit, a thirst for him. Let him come to me. A drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There is a outpouring, a waterfall of God's spirit upon humanity. The question isn't if you're worthy of it. The question isn't has God done enough to make you a recipient of it. The question is, are you yourself going to step underneath that waterfall? Are you yourself going to receive the outpouring of blessing that God has for you in relationship with him?
the work of his spirit. So that's the first charge. What a great charge. Jesus says this too. I love this John 15. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Like, this is a really good reminder for me because I feel like so often what I can do in my faith relationship with God is I can like live or die based on how I'm producing spiritual fruit or not. Like, am I doing the right things? Am I walking in the spirit? And I so make it like a solo endeavor as if like it was my idea to be fruitful in the first place. Like I, like I woke up one day and I was just like, you know what, God, you know what you need from me? He's like, what? I'm like, you need me to be fruitful. I'm gonna work on this, Lord. Jesus is like, well, no, you're not the originator of fruitfulness in your life. That wasn't your idea. That was my idea. I chose you. You didn't choose me. I selected you for fruitfulness. Also, you're not the source of fruitfulness. You, you can't bear fruit on your own. That's what Jesus says. Right? You know the expression? Like, there's other thing as an apple tree that's like, trying to work out apples. Got to be fruitful. Got to have a spiritual life. No, fruit is something that happens organically when you are connected to the source. Jesus says, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So that's where spiritual life comes from. Let's look at this next one. There's another parable Jesus tells, and the call of this parable is to be faithful. This is another charge. Like, how do we live in light of Christ's return? That first parable calls us into a, a, a sort of fruitful spirituality. God, you've called me to this. Would you make me fruitful? Would you find authentic oil in my life when you return. And then Jesus takes another angle, and it's the parable of the three stewards, stewards, and the call here for his followers is to be found faithful. He wants to find you filled with his Holy Spirit, filled not with the things of this world and things of the flesh, but filled with his spirit. He also wants and calls us to be faithful. And there's something about watching like knowing that Jesus is going to come back is going to drive me to greater faithfulness with what he's called me to. Okay, um, this is kind of like the knock at a lot of Christians that are expecting the return of Christ. The mindset is like you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. So you sort of like detach from culture. You create your own little Christian subculture where we make our own clothing and music over here. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. We're getting beamed out of here. It's like, what are you doing? True heavenly-mindedness doesn't lead to disengagement. It leads to further faithfulness right where you are, seeing that what you're doing is much more significant than maybe it would be without God. So faithfulness should be the result of Jesus' return. Like, he's coming. i got to be faithful with what I've been given. He could come in my lifetime. He could come in ten lifetimes. I don't know. But I'm going to be faithful so that he finds me that way. He tells this parable where he says the kingdom of heaven, here's another example, is like a man traveling to a far country. We read that in Mark 13. And he called his own servants to him. And this is, you know, kind of pre-banks. And there was banks in some ways back then. But one, one way that a, a rich man would um, invest or multiply his wealth is he would entrust it to his servants, and he would give that they would be the banks. And their responsibility was to not maintain the resource, but multiply it. That's what it meant to be faithful. So he called his own servants, and he delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents. They each get different amounts, these three stooges. Five, look, one of them gets five talents, another gets two talents, and another servant gets one talent. Now, real quick, talents doesn't mean like, oh, so one of them can juggle. 
That's cool. Wow. Okay. A, a talent is literally, in that culture, it's a measure of money. Um, somewhere like $1,200 or so, about a day's uh, wages uh, back then. And so this was, um, this was kind of the symbol of that. It's literally a financial a point of currency. And uh, the, today when we use the word talent, well, that, you see that athlete, that running back? He's talented. Okay? We're literally pulling from Scripture. Scripture informs so much of our culture. This is where that phrase comes from. Uh, so they're each distributed a different amount. And then this master, he goes on a journey. It says this, then he who had received the five talents, they each handle what they've been entrusted with differently. We know the story, right? The one with the five talents, what does he do? He trades and he makes another five. He multiplies. He makes the most out of what he's been given. And the person that has two, I love this. He doesn't go, well, you have five. I only have two. He just says, this is what I've been given. And I need to be faithful with what I've been given. And my faithfulness has nothing to do with what you've been given. It's about what I've been given. And I've got to make the most of what God has given me, no matter how much or how little it is. That's faithfulness. And so he took his two, and he invested that as well. And then there was the person who received the one. And he went, and he dug it, and he stuck it in the ground, and he hid it. He goes, I just, his goal with what he was given is, I just don't want to lose it. That's it. That was his mindset. Very limited scarcity mentality. I don't want to lose it. So he buried it in the ground. And after a long time, here's that picture of the return those servants came, and they settled accounts with the master. He who had received five talents came and brought the five others. He said, Lord, you delivered to me five talents, and look, I've gained five more talents. And his Lord said to him, here's what he says to him, well done, good, and what? Faithful servant. You've been faithful with what you've been given. You were faithful over a few things, and here's the reward for faithful work. It's more work. The joy of, of working with the Lord. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Same thing happens with the guy who has two talents. He brings his two, he brought, and he brings what he multiplied with that two. And his Lord says, well done. You, you did what you were supposed to with what you were given. You made the most of it. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you rule over many things. Now, he who had received the one talent, here's what he came and said. And I want you to notice that his actions here of what he did with what he was given is rooted in his understanding of his master. This is really interesting. He says, Lord, I know you to be a hard man. Really strict and rough and harsh and hard to work for. Reaping where you have not sown. He has this perspective of this guy. You, you benefit off other people's work. Do you see the heart posture here? Just bitterness and frustration with the master. And you gather where you have not scattered seed. I was afraid, so I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is, what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. This is a wild story. Even how Jesus ends up dealing with this man, he, he casts this man into utter judgment. But notice the contrast. Out of these three, two of them were faithful and one was counted foolish. Two were faithful, one was foolish. The one who was foolish saw his actions as faithful. It's like I was doing the right thing, just burying it there in the ground. Now, what do we learn from this story? What we learn from this parable that Jesus tells 
is we, we learn the nature of faithfulness. We learn God's perspective of faithfulness. And we, we said it a couple times, but faithfulness begins first with recognizing everything you have, you and I, spiritually speaking now, as something that we've been entrusted with as stewards. All that we have is something that God has entrusted us with. Faithfulness is then making the most out of what God has given me. That's simply it. Faithfulness is making the most, drawing the potential out of whatever God has given me. That was the condemnation that that foolish servant received. He just maintained what he had rather than multiplying. And this is even what you see like in the very beginning in, in the creation story. You see, God creates the earth with raw potential and resource. He puts man in the earth, and the responsibility that man has in partnership with God is to draw out the potential of the created order. To, to take what God's given and in partnership with God to watch God make beautiful things. To see the potential of what could be when we take what, the raw material of what God's given us and we invest it into his direction. We invest it for good. This is faithfulness. Now, uh, 1 Corinthians 4.2 says that it's required. It's required of stewards to be found faithful. We, we are all stewards. We're all people that have been entrusted with various things. The question is, are we being faithful? Um, can I give you some examples here? here here's just, like a, just an array of a couple things that God's called us to be faithful with as we live watchfully. These are, you know, I think of the question that God asked Moses. He's like, what's in your hand? Moses had the staff, and God's like, what, what do you have? What can I use for me? And, and Moses recognizes what he has as something to be surrendered to God and something to be stewarded. Um, how, how are you being faithful? Let's start with your time. You know, scripture says, redeem the time. Time is, is currency, right? Um, and... A lot of times, the mistake we make with our time, which is a gift that we're to steward, is we either waste our, this is what I've noticed, we waste our time, or we waste time worrying about wasted time. You ever done that? Today, some of us are like, today, some of us aren't stewarding our time well because we're so stuck on how much we've wasted, and you're wasting time worrying about wasted time. Redeem the time. The days are evil. Whatever time God has given you, Use it as a stewardship. Be faithful with it. Multiply it. Resources. What can you recognize as something that God has entrusted into your hand? And, and don't compare the amount to someone next to you or around you. It's just what God has given you. How are you being faithful to make the most of the resources that God has placed in your life? What about your abilities? The things that God has made you more naturally good at. There's things that you do that people are like, how did you do that? You're like, what? That wasn't hard. That just comes natural. But for them, that would, it's not natural. There's certain gifts, there's certain qualities and, 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 and skills that God has deposited into your life. Those aren't just for you. Are you stewarding it well, your skills, your abilities? What about your relationships? Who has God entrusted to you? What people, what children has God placed in your life? What about your experiences? What are you doing with what God has done for you? What are you doing with your testimony? This, this comfort that you've received from God that Paul says is meant to be now a comfort to others. I like Greg Laurie. He says, God doesn't comfort us to make us comfortable. He comforts us to make us comforters. 
What have you experienced? Are you stewarding that experience? One of the best ways to find healing from some of the negative experiences we walk through is to see God take that misery and make it a ministry where I can serve others with what I've walked through. And then lastly, passions. Um, are you stewarding the things that God has lit your heart up for? The things that you just are uniquely passionate about. You know, your friends all know you're passionate about it. And it's what's so beautiful about you being uniquely you. It's your passions. It's the thing that you uniquely care about. You know, we all have like different core values. That's what's so beautiful about the body of Christ. You get all these people in the same room and we have the same like general biblical values, but we each have like out of the values, there's always like that one value that's most important to us. And you get into community, it's usually just like this really weird contest of values. It's like, oh, we all value the same things, but you value that especially more. You value justice in such a great and special way. It's so near to the heart of God. You value mercy. You value evangelism. You value revival. You have a passion to see these people healed and made whole. Such a beautiful thing that God has put in you for you to steward. Amen? All right, be faithful. Let's close with this last one. Uh, we'll invite the team up here. This last one is the parable of the sheep and goats. This last parable. Jesus says, hey, be faithful. Be fruitful. And then here with this last, it's really more of a, it's a reality of an event to come. Jesus uses a parable to describe it, but it's this call for us to be a force for the kingdom. To be forceful. To not just let life happen to me, but in the power of the Spirit to happen to life. Jesus says this. This is a sobering closing point where he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, he's coming, he's coming soon, he will sit on the throne of his glory. This is a real future event that will take place in history, uh, in, in eternity future. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another. There is a dividing line that will be drawn between all of humanity. And the division is between what he calls the sheep and the goats, the righteous and the unrighteous, the believing and the unbelieving. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, it's a place of honor, and the goats on his left. This is where it gets to be a bit more of a parable, this illustration of sheep and goats. This is the job of a shepherd, is to divide between the, sh the, the true sheep and those that are not authentic sheep. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Look what he says. For I was hungry. This is Jesus speaking. I was hungry, and you gave me food. He says, I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? I don't remember you being hungry or thirsty. Or when did we see you as a stranger or, or naked? I don't remember that. Or, or when did we see you sick, Lord? Jesus, when, when were you in prison? <laughs> I don't remember visiting you in prison. Jesus says, the king, I love this, and the king will answer and say to them, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done this unto me. What a beautiful way, as Jesus describes this future distinction between believers and unbelievers, between the righteous and the unrighteous, uh, Jesus characterizes the sheep by what their faith, the righteous, by what their faith had led them to do, the force that they were in the world, as they were serving the least of these, as they were just agents of the kingdom, they were ultimately 
serving Jesus. Jesus is looking for this in his followers. He, he looks on at our life and he goes, I want to find you fruitful. I want to see you filled with my spirit. It's something that comes between you and me. It's the best case scenario for your life is leaning fully on me and finding strength in me. And then I want you to be faithful with what I've given you. That's how you can live watchfully. Be someone that's found as a faithful steward who's multiplied whatever God has entrusted to your life. And then lastly, he looks on at his, belie- as his followers, the believers in Jesus, as those who have brought the kingdom to the world around them. They, they've been this, this force for the kingdom. I think of Ephesians 2.10, where the scripture says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Um, there's hurting people all around you each and every day. There's broken situations that you are, you are the agent of light in that dark place. Jesus calls us to be busy about the things of his kingdom. And there, listen, there's something, when you know that Christ is returning, it will wake you up. There's an urgency it will create in you to, to be a force of good in a world of evil, to be a force of blessing in a world of cursing, to be a force of light in a world of darkness, to be a force of love in a world of selfishness, and to be a force of healing in a world of brokenness. We're called to be that kingdom force. And ultimately, here's where we close here as we go to the communion table. Peter says this, gird up the loins of your mind, he says it to followers of Jesus, and be sober, and rest your hope fully. What's your hope in today? Rest it, not partially, but totally on the grace that's coming in the return of Christ, at the revelation of Jesus. This, listen, this should be the posture of our hearts and our minds when we think about Christ's return. Grace is coming. Hope is coming. Are you in Christ? Good days are ahead. Jesus' return is near. And he's coming soon. He'll come suddenly, but with that, there's such grace that you should give your whole life to the hope that's coming. Don't get used to these promises. Live accordingly. Let that drive you to fruitfulness. Let that drive you to be faithful. Let that drive you ultimately to be a force for his kingdom.